Good evening, church. Uh, good to be back with you again. Thank you for coming out again. Um, I don't know about Pastor Jeff. You know, one of the, since I started speaking, um, I have zero self-confidence, and my greatest fear is that I'll come back some evening after preaching in the morning and there's nobody there. And I'm always wondering how I'm going to deal with that. Thank you for saving me, finding out how I would deal with that. Um, we read this morning from 1 Peter. Uh, I should say as well, um, look, I've removed the, uh, the white things from my hand. This was causing some distraction, I think, this morning. Um, and in addition to the distraction, I think some of you thought I was a big whoosh. So I determined that I should take them off and be a hard man. Um, I was simply asked that if you're shaking my hand at the door, don't shake it too hard, <laughs> a little bit tender. Um, okay, so Peter is writing to these believers, and they are in the north of Asia Minor, and they are some Jews, many Gentiles. Um, they are predominantly from the lower classes. They are marginalized. They are ostracized. They are persecuted. There is worse to come, and Peter is writing to encourage them to stand fast in the true grace of God. And he begins his letter by reminding them that they have been chosen by God, that they are people who have received mercy from God, that their living hope is in God, that they are being kept um, for an inheritance by the power of God, and that therefore, even in the midst of trials, they can, they can look up and they can rejoice um, in Christ. Rejoice in the hope of full salvation, which is yet to come, because they are saved from the, the penalty of sin, and God is working in them by His Spirit to save them from the power of sin, but there is a day coming when they will be saved from the presence of sin. I think sometimes as believers, you know, we focus on, yeah, we're saved. Uh, this is great. We're saved people. Um, that's only one third of it. We are saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. There's still lots to come. The best is yet to come. Um, Peter says grace is coming. Uh, and that grace will see you transformed finally into a being who is free from all the pull of sin, from all the pull of flesh, and dressed again in a, in a new body that is incorruptible uh, for eternity, exploring who God is and, and all the wonders of creation. And so we look forward to that. Uh, while these believers are waiting for that grace which is to come for Christ to return, Peter's message to them is this. Um, to live as aliens and exiles and as strangers in a society which doesn't want them, which has no time for them, which doesn't understand them, um, but to live in such a way that they honor God. And really, one Peter is that. It is teaching them and us how we are to live in a society in which we are essentially aliens. We have a citizenship which is heaven rather than on earth. Our primary loyalty is to Christ, not to UK. Uh, our primary uh, constitution is the word of God. Our primary longings are for somewhere else. Um, you know, all of that there in those first few verses in 1 Peter was great theology. It's just wonderful, wonderful theology, but um, I'm sure it's right to say that the invariable pattern in the New Testament, in Scripture, 
perhaps as a whole, is that behavior, Christian conduct, follows theology. There's always a therefore. And when you get theology, like what you have in those first um, 12, 13 verses in 1 Peter, you can almost count on this. There is going to be a therefore. Therefore, do this. And it comes um, as part of that pattern in Scripture in verse 13. Theology prompts ethics. So what is Peter prompting in us by telling us who we are in Christ and all that there is for us? Let me read to you these verses from 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, I think I'm starting in verse 13. Therefore, is that right? Or is that verse 14? That's verse 13. Happy days. Verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed that is coming. There you have it again. That's what you set your hope on. There is grace coming. You've received grace, but grace is coming. You've only got a wee bit. There is a whole flood of grace still to come for you when Jesus Christ is revealed that is coming. And as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it's written, be holy because I am holy. And since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here, as exiles or aliens here, in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. And through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. And now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Uh, And that first word in our passage this evening, that first all-important word is therefore. Therefore. So you take all this truth that you have heard about all that God has done, all that he has given to you, all that he promises to you, all that he is doing for you, and you take all that and you just don't take it and forget it, or you just don't take it and hold fast to it, you take it and in the light of that truth, therefore, This is what you do in the light of that. And what follows is a series of reflections on the difference that all of that truth about salvation should make in the lives of these believers uh, and make in the lives of us believers this evening. Um, And in these verses that we've read together, there are 
four imperatives. There are four commands, and each command is set alongside doctrine. This is the truth, therefore do this. This is the truth, therefore live like this. Um, those four, in summary, before we look at them one at a time, um, first of all in verse 13, um, the first point that Peter's making is that Christ will, re- will return, you will receive grace, and therefore, in the light of that, you set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Set your hope on that grace to be revealed when Christ comes. The second one in verse 15, Peter says and reminds them, you are God's children. You are God's children. Therefore, be holy in all that you do. If you are God's children, then you must be like God. And God is holy, therefore you must be holy. Holy. Number three in verse 17, God will be your judge. God will be your judge. And therefore, you live out your time here as foreigners, as exiles in this world in reverent fear. Because God is your judge. God will be your judge. And finally, number four, you've been born again through the word of God. Therefore, love one another deeply from the heart. That's in verse 22. Let's begin with, with hope. And we do this quite briefly because we talked about this this morning. Therefore, he says in verse 13, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So before we get to that hope again, Peter says, this is how your mind should work. This is what you need to do with your mind if this is really going to make a difference. He says, you've got to have minds which are alert and fully sober. Um, The first expression, minds that are alert, a literal translation of that would be to gird up the loins of your mind. So you understand why the NIV simply has it as with minds that are alert. But girding up the loins of your minds, what's that? Okay, so maybe you know, but in any case, um, in first century, um, Middle East men wore long tunics, long shirts, right down to their ankles. And that was good because protected from the sun and kept them cool. But uh, it wasn't much good if you want to do some serious work because it was very restricting. So what the men did was with these long tunics, they, they bent down and they grabbed the tunic at the back and they pulled it up the front and they tucked it into their belt. So now instead of a long flowing tunic, they have like shorts almost tucked into their belt. That was girding up the loins of their tunic. And Peter takes that expression and says, you gird up the loins of your mind. Your minds must be ready for action. You must not be slothful in your thinking. You must not be relaxed and chilled in your thinking. You've got to be mentally alert. The second expression, to be fully sober, is literally as we take it. It's it's the whole idea of of alcohol abuse. Be sober. Be fully self-controlled. Be fully focused on what's going on around you. This is important, he says. You must be mentally alert. You must be fully focused. Um, Christians are to use their minds. That, I think, might come as a shock to some Christians who for whom living by faith means that they suspend reason and common sense and they just go with the flow. 
Peter says you must be mentally alert. Very unkind cynic um, once remarked that if God had wanted Christians to think, he would have given them brains. I've heard that said. And I think among, you know, maybe when you look around some believers in some churches, you think, well, yeah, I could see where they're coming from. Because sometimes it looks as though we are so incredibly slack. We don't think. Thank God for believers who can express their faith clearly and defend their faith and do it in a gracious, positive, truthful, honest, loving way. Your minds must be fully alert. You must be fully sober. Um, What you must be focused on is the truth that this world that you're living in is not your home, that this world that you're living in is transitory. It is going to pass. It might not pass before you pass, but it's transitory. This is not your final destination. So you don't put down too many roots here. You hold on to things lightly. Because what ultimately matters is not what you gain in this world, but on what you are gaining in the next world. And this world is subtle, and the flesh is subtle. And if we are not fully focused daily on this truth, this world is not my home. This is not where I belong. This is not where I try to set up a permanent dwelling. My home is in heaven. And I need to know daily and remind myself daily that what matters is eternity. Not that I am dismissive of the importance of what I might contribute in this world now, but this world is not my home. And you must hold on to that truth with minds that are alert and be fully self-controlled. Not allow our thinking to be impaired by sin or other distractions. Um, Some people, I've heard it said, I think maybe I've said it as well, um, excuse their, their lack of positivity and their lack of joy by saying that, you know, by nature they're pessimists. When they look at a glass that's half full, they will see it as half empty rather than as half full. And we, we kind of use that as an excuse for not being as positive and as joyful as we ought to be. Um, I've increasingly come to realize, especially over the last few weeks, that I am a new creation in Christ. I'm a new creation in Christ, and Christ did not make me miserable. Christ did not make me pessimistic. If I am miserable and pessimistic, it's not because that's the way Christ remade me. It's because of something else. And setting your mind on something means a deliberate act of the will, a deliberate conscious decision, um, a deliberate conscious orientation of your life towards eternity so that you're looking that direction so that your priorities are right not wrong so that you're living for the kingdom um thinking of robin mark song just coming into my mind right now when it's all been said and done there's just one thing that matters that i do my best for christ the king i can't remember the very last bit but when it's all been said and done. That's what really matters, and that is what you're setting your mind on. That's the truth. That's all that really matters. John writes to the believers in 1 John chapter 3, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, 
where we shall see him as he is, and all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So if our minds are set on this truth that Christ is coming, that this is not our home, that our eyes are set on eternity, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Which is exactly Peter's thinking because the very next point that he makes is point number two here. Be holy. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Um, you will know, but the, whole, the, the New Testament emphatically rejects this attitude that if you are a person who has been chosen by God, and if God has placed his hope in you, and if God has given you mercy, and if God has made you uh, a new person and given you new life and made you a new creature in Christ, then you can do whatever you want. You can't, okay? That's not New Testament teaching. Um, the therefore is be holy. Let's be clear about what holiness is. Well, very simply, when the word holy is applied to God. It first of all means that God is set apart from all other beings, that God is wholly distinct from all other beings. He is utterly unique. He is unrivaled. He is totally self-sufficient. God is holy. And secondly, God is not only set apart from all other beings, but God is separate from all that is not absolutely pure. God is morally perfect. And so whenever the Word of God says to us that we must pursue holiness, what we're being told is that God has set us apart, that God has set us apart as a holy people, holy individually, also holy as a people. We are a holy people, a nation set apart. We come to that next week when we consider um, living as, as God's chosen people. We are set apart and we are to pursue purity. We are to pursue truth and justice and every moral perfection um, in this world. J.C. Ryle, in his uh, classic work, Holiness, defines holiness like this. Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God, according as we find his mind described in Scripture. It is the habit of agreeing with God's judgment, hearing what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. That's quite a calling. William Gurnall was a 17th century Anglican clergyman. He said this to believers, Say not that you have royal blood in your veins. Say not, in other words, that you are a child of God and are born of God, except you can prove your pedigree by daring to be holy. Do not claim to be a believer. Do not claim to be a child of God unless your life portrays this pursuit of holiness because you have no right. God says, be holy because I am holy. And Peter calls his readers to holiness on the basis of their new identity in Christ. They are born again into God's family. They have a new birth. That new birth means that God's DNA is flowing in them. I 
spiritually have God's DNA. I am a child of God. If they cut me open, perish the thought, and look, they wouldn't find that physically, but spiritually, I am made in the likeness of God, and I am being daily renewed in the image of my creator. That's what Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 10, being renewed in knowledge in the image of our creator. Uh, And we are to be imitators of God as beloved children in Ephesians chapter 5. We are to live as obedient children. There's something that I've been learning, um, especially over the last few weeks. In Newton Burrito at the minute, our, our theme for the autumn until the start of December when we get into the Christmas program is a series that we are calling Formed. And the theme of that is spiritual formation, which was a term that I wasn't that familiar with, but spiritual formation is essentially that work of God in us by which we are being formed and conformed and transformed into the likeness of Christ. That is God's will for us. Um, God's grace is not simply towards us to save us, but also to transform us and renew us. His grace is forgiving, but also transforming. And when you read Galatians, and I know you've studied that book together, and when you read through the New Testament epistles, you find that that Paul's burning desire, his consuming desire for the believers in these churches was not that they would pursue this holiness by keeping rules, was not that there was some new Christian law, a series of tick boxes, do not do this, do not do this, you must do this, you must do this. His passion was that they might be transformed from within, in their heart, in that new part of their being, which was their mind and their will, their soul, their their conscience, that that might be renewed in the image of Jesus, and that the transformation is from the inside out. And I have read these passages, and I have preached in Galatians, and I have, uh, if you'd asked me, I would have said, yes, I, I get that, but you know what? About two weeks ago, I was preparing a message from Galatians, and I read this verse that, uh, where, where Paul says that, um, you know, those who, who love, those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. And for the first time in a lot of years of Christian life, the penny dropped, just like that. It just dropped. It was as though something uh, which I should have seen 30 or 40 years ago just opened up to me. And I suddenly realized that perhaps I, along with so many others, have been going about this the wrong way. By trying so hard to be holy, by not doing things, by polishing up the exterior, That's not the way. That's not the New Testament way, church. The New Testament way is a transformation on the inside. Holiness begins here and works its way out. It doesn't begin on the outside and work its way in. What we wrestle with as believers is the flesh. That that part of our nature which is untouched by God, which is independent of God, which is driven by pride, which is driven by um, its own love of independence from God, which will never ever submit to God's law, and 
the flesh is subtle. And what the flesh does is it comes along and it says, look, you want to be righteous. You want to be holy. You want to be like God. So this is how you do it. You keep the rules. You try harder. You've got to be better than you are. You've got to have some new rules. You've got to try harder at the old rules. And it's a lie, church. The whole law of God is fulfilled in loving God and loving your neighbor. And holiness in the New Testament is not about keeping lots of rules and ticking boxes. It's about allowing God's Holy Spirit with the truth of the Word of God to transform us from the inside. See all these things that are wrong in our lives, all these things that you think make you unholy. Maybe it's pride or selfishness. Maybe it's deceit, maybe it's greed, maybe it's lust, maybe it's whatever. And you think that to be holy, you must deal with that and and eradicate that and try harder and harder to get rid of that. And reality, that's not the problem at all. Your problem, Christian, is not your greed or your lust or your pride or your conceit or your anger or whatever else. That's not your problem. That that I'm describing there is just the tip of the iceberg, okay? Okay. It's a little white bit of an iceberg floating and bobbing above the sea. And that's what we target. I've got to deal with this. got to deal with this. That's not the problem. The problem is what's underneath. The problem is what's underneath the water. And it's dark and it's nasty and it's foreboding and it's enormous. And you're never, ever going to conquer it because the Jews in the Old Testament couldn't conquer it. And you're not going to conquer it. It's the flesh. It's sin. And God says, what I want to do in you is make you holy from the inside out. I want you to lean on me. I want you to allow my spirit to work in you and transform you from the inside so that you have new attitudes and new thoughts and new feelings and new motives and and new understandings. And then that works its way out. And when you have come to love God and love your neighbor, you're not under the law. The law is not there for you. The law is only there to show us that we need God. Be holy, Be holy, church. Holiness only grows in relationship with Christ. It should be motivated out of love for Christ. Um, it's It's not achieved either by withdrawing from the world like some believers do. Like you come out of the world and you have no contact with the world. That's not holiness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, great German theologian, spoke of a worldly holiness a worldly holiness that he said was forged on the anvil of everyday life. That's the holiness. If you want to see holiness, you don't look at those hermits in the past who lived on top of pillars and in caves where the world could not touch them. You look at Christ who was out there meeting sinners and encountering sinners and eating and drinking with sinners and healing sinners and loving sinners into the kingdom. That's holiness. That's the holiness that God calls you to. Not a withdrawal from the world, but a A separation in that it's not what we love, but we live in it. Peter says to these believers, live in the world. But don't make that the focus of your life. Pursue holiness. One last thought about holiness, church. Um, We are called individual holiness, but most of the calls to holiness in the New Testament are actually corporate holiness, the holiness of the church. Um, The nation of Israel was called to be a holy nation. God said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. 
and he's speaking to the entire nation. And we are that new nation. Paul, or Peter says in 2 Peter that we are a holy nation. We are the new Israel. We are called to a corporate holiness. This is really important. God does not intend that our pursuit of holiness should be a lonely, individual, personal struggle. Because if that is the case, you are doomed to failure. Christ created the church so that this pursuit of holiness is not something you do on your own, not a burden that you carry on your own, not a cross that you carry on your own, but a cross that is shared within the church. It should be nurtured in the body of Christ in a loving and caring fellowship where we can be encouraged and supported and forgiven and healed. That's where holiness is nurtured. You can't do this on your own, Christian. You come here and this is your fellowship, this is your church, this is your family, and we do it together. Uh, and sometimes the theme of our conversations should not be simply on the weather or the match last night. It should be on how are we doing spiritually? How is that quest for holiness? Are you encouraged or are you discouraged? It should be praying for one another and upholding one another and above all, forgiving one another so that when somebody falls, because we all do, when somebody falls into sin, when somebody dishonors Christ, and, and as a church elder, one of the hardest things church elders ever do is to impose some form of church discipline in situations. But when there is repentance and when there is um, a a genuine repentance, then the church must forgive. God says, I'm going to remember their sins no more, and you mustn't remember people's sins anymore either. You don't look at them and think, oh yeah, they did. You don't. God chooses to forget, and you choose to forget. And when we fall into sin, and when we dishonor Christ, that's not the end of the road. Because Christ can pick us up and redeem us, and the church should be there to warmly embrace us and say, welcome back. Live in fear. Live in fear. Uh, Peter says, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time here as foreigners in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, but with the precious blood of Christ. See, when you reflect on the holiness of God, that naturally leads to reverent fear. Um, it should lead to reverent fear. Um, and I love, you know, in church when we're singing and we're joyful and we clap our hands and maybe sometimes you even raise your hands and you're, you're thrilled to bits, but you never, ever leave that reverence, that sense of God's awesomeness of the fact that you are invited into God's presence, but you do not come in your own worth. You come as a guest. For he is God. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in obedience to him, to love him and to serve him with all your heart. The Lord, says Psalm 147, verse 11, the Lord delights in those who fear him. That's not a trembling terror. That's a reverent fear. Therefore, says the writer of the Hebrews, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. When you worship God acceptably, you're doing it with reverence and with awe, with a holy fear, a holy awareness that you're in the presence of God. 
Peter says that attitude should characterize their believers as they, as they live out their lives here because God is not just your heavenly father. God is your judge. God is your judge. Um, and I, I know whenever I hear people saying that in the pulpit, it always causes me to shudder a little bit. But surely I'm forgiven. I'm, I'm redeemed. I'm, I'm, I'm going to heaven. Yes, I am. Yeah, I am. But God's going to judge me. God is going to judge me. And if you're a believer... Even though you are justified and you're being sanctified and you're going to receive full salvation, God is going to judge you. God is going to be your judge. Isn't that what Peter says? For God is a consuming fire and God will judge us. And it's not a judgment based on our sins. It's a judgment based on our Christian lives, the quality of our Christian lives, our Christian stewardship of the gifts and the talents that God has given us, of the opportunities and the responsibilities that we all have as believers. Let's not pretend, church, that we simply stride around doing as we please. Peter says to these believers, you are having it hard, but you need to remember that God is your judge. He is your heavenly Father, and He loves you passionately but he is your judge, and he will judge the worth of your Christian life. Solemn. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, so we make it our goal to please him. Whether we're at home or in the body or away from it, so we must all appear, he says, all of us, including Paul who's writing, all of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And therefore, Christians, let's pursue reverent fear. And it's also not just because God is our judge, but because Peter reminds them of the cost of their salvation. Somebody remarked once that to create us, God only had to speak a word of command. To redeem us, he had to shed divine blood. It was costly. It was awesome. And if that's the case, and you begin to really comprehend what that meant, that for God to redeem you, he had to shed divine blood, then you live in a reverent fear of ever dishonoring the cost of that sacrifice. Lord, forgive me if I ever dishonor the blood of Christ, because that was the cost of my salvation. And you notice here that appreciation of the cost of our redemption should cause us to fear dishonoring that payment and its purpose and motivate us to be a, to a reverent fear of God and holy living that glorifies him. And finally, you'd be glad to hear, live in love. Live in love. Live in hope, live in holiness, live in reverent fear. Live in love. Now that you've purified yourself, believers, by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Well, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Love one another deeply. And again, it's all parceled up in doctrine and theology. You have been purified by obeying the truth. In the light of that truth that God has made you pure, that God has sanctified you and is sanctifying you, therefore, live in love. And as believers, we think, yeah, what well, we do, we, we are living in a Christian fellowship, we love one another. And Peter is saying, yeah, yeah, so love each other more. Love each other more, even more. 
Do it deeply from the heart. That new birth that God gives to us to make us new creatures not only gives us this new relationship of love with our Heavenly Father, but brings us into His church, His bride, His people, and into a relationship of love with each other. And when we truly love God and when we truly love each other, we have fulfilled the law. That's the fulfillment of the law. What is the greatest commandment? Love God, love your neighbor. On those two commandments, as Jesus, hang all of the law and all of the prophets. So when you love God, when you truly love one another, you're fulfilling the law. It's a simple and as complicated, maybe, as well as that. Love one another deeply. Um, the word some other places in the New Testament is translated earnestly. It's sometimes applied to prayer. It literally means um, to love with supreme effort. Uh, to love with every muscle strained. I once saw this, this image of, of the use of that word and it was in a horse race and the, the horses are, are running to the finish line and uh, they are sweating and the veins are out on their necks and their mouths are open trying to get as much oxygen as they can and that's what that expression is conveying. That's how much you are to love one another with every muscle strained because whenever you're doing that, you're coming close to divine love. That is God who is a, a juggernaut of love and God says, listen, I want you to love one another deeply. And if you're doing it already, then you do it more and more and more. Howard Snyder says this, speaking of many churches and maybe speaking of the American church more than the British church or the Northern Irish church, but he says the church today is suffering a fellowship crisis. In a world of big impersonal institutions, the church often looks like just another big impersonal institution. One seldom finds within the institutionalized churches today that winsome intimacy among people where masks are dropped, where honesty prevails, and that sense of communication and community beyond the human abounds where there is literally the fellowship of and in the Holy Spirit. Is that found in my church, where people can remove masks without fear of recrimination, without fear of mockery, without fear of denunciation, where people can simply come and be themselves and say, look, this is how I feel. This is what's going on in my life. Will you pray for me? Will you help me? Or we can take off the masks, the pretense, the evangelical smiles that everything is okay in our world and our Christian faith is fine and as believers all is hunky-dory when it's not. Love means we can take off the mask and say, look, this is how I really feel. I really, really have these doubts. I have these fears. I have these anxious thoughts and I feel rotten because of it and I don't feel that I'm worthy of the name of a Christian. But can we take off those masks? and find what Christian love is. The kind of love that God requires of us can only be attained as we pursue holiness through ongoing obedience to his word, discipline and constant striving to please our Father. And Christian love does not take the place of hope 
and holiness and reverent fear, it, it flows from them. It's dependent upon them. We can never truly love one another until we are pursuing holiness, until our eyes are set on the world that is yet to come, until we have learned to live in reverent fear of our God, who loves us passionately as our Father, but who is also an impartial judge. Love one another deeply from your heart. Next week, we, we look at living as God's chosen people uh, and living in submission. Let's pray. Is the band coming up again? Yeah, great stuff. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Um, Lord, when we come across these um, instructions that we are to live in hope, Father, so often we confess to you, Lord, our eyes are in the wrong place. Uh, when you tell us, Lord, that we're to live in holiness, we're only too aware of our frailty and our sinfulness. When you tell us to live in reverent fear, Lord, at times we confess that we are casual uh, and unthinking and perhaps irreverent in the way that we act and speak. Uh, you tell us, Lord, that we're to live in love, Father, at times we don't. At times we're motivated most of all by self-interest, at times, Lord, we do not truly empathize with our brothers and sisters. At times, we may be unapproachable. At times, we may be abrupt and hurtful. Forgive us, our Father. Thank you that the work that you're doing in us is not down to us. It's down to what you are doing in us. And so we open ourselves to you and we say, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. And work in our hearts, Lord. Transform us from within. Um, Lord, we want to do our part, but we cannot do it without you. Uh, help us to pursue uh, spiritual formation rather than simply um, dealing with the veneer of our lives, those sins which we're so aware of. Help us, Lord, to see that it must come deeper than that. It's a work of God in us by your Spirit. Uh, we thank you for your mercy towards us. And we pray for your blessing upon us now and throughout this week, Lord, as we seek to live for you and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.